Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to the D-Hypno program. This will be episode nine. Full title will be Dr. John Gittinger, Midnight Climax and His Strange Tie to the JFK Assassination. So this will be about Dr. John Gittinger, and he worked with or worked under Sidney Gottlieb, the head poisoner. I think it was the book by Kinzer just came out in the last couple of years. And I'll be reading from chapter 10 of John Mark's book, Search for the Manchurian Candidate. It's about this operation and safe houses in New York City and San Francisco, of which Gittinger was part of and monitored. And Marx was very famous for finding 16,000 pages of CAA documents under the Freedom of Information Act. And it includes a whole chapter on the personality assessment system of Gittinger. But Marx is still alive, actually. So he's around and he's also worked at Harvard Institute of Politics and is a visiting scholar at Harvard Law School. But again, so I'll read from the full chapter 10 and see how much time I have back. But Gittinger also testified in the 1977 MK Ultra hearings. So I have information on him and that that was Project MK Ultra, the CIA's program of research in behavioral modification joint hearing before the Senate or Select Committee on Intelligence. And that was August 3rd, 1977. So there's uh, that. And there's also, I think, one that took place. One of his, somebody who lit, worked under him, um, Rhodes was his name, did a testimony on human drug testing by the CIA, September 20th, 1977. And that was about them trying to aerosolize LSD and how kind of the mishap around it. But... Like I said, there is a strange tie to the JFK assassination, which I'll go into as long as I have time at the end. So here is, actually it's chapter six, excuse me. The title of it is Them Unwitting the Safe Houses. Frank Olson's death could have been a major setback for the agency's LSD testing, but the program, like Sid Gottlieb's career, emerged essentially unscathed. High CA officials did call a temporary halt to all experiments while they investigated the Olson case and re-examined the general policy. They cabled the two field stations that had supplies of the drug, Manila and Atsugi, Japan. Oh, aside, that's where Oswald's station was, Atsugi. Not to use it for the time being. And they even took away Sid Gottlieb's own private supply and had it locked up in his boss's safe, to which no one else had the combination. In the end, however, Alan Dulles accepted the, rich, the view Richard Helms put forth that the only reasonable, operationally realistic way to test drugs was to try them on unwitting people. Helms noted that experiments which gave advance warning would be pro forma at best and result in a false sense of accomplishment and readiness. For Alan Dulles and his top aides, the possible importance of LSD clearly outweighed the risks and ethical problem of slipping the drug to involuntary subjects. They gave Gottlieb back his LSD. Once the CA's top echelon had made its decision to continue unwitting testing, there remained, in Richard Helms' words, only then the question of how best to do it. The agency's role in the Olson affair had come too perilously close to leaking out for the comfort of the security-minded. So TSS officials simply had to work out a testing system with better cover. That meant finding subjects who could not be so easily traced back to the agency. Well before Olson's death, Gottlieb and the MKUltra crew had started pondering how best to do unwitting testing. 
They considered using an American police force to test drugs on prisoners, informants, and suspects, but they knew that some local politicians would inevitably find out. In the agency view, such people could not be trusted to keep sensitive secrets. TSS officials thought about trying federal prisons or hospitals, but when sounded out, the Bureau of Prisons refused to go along with true unwitting testing, as opposed to the voluntary, if coercive, form practice on drug addicts in Kentucky. They contemplated moving the program overseas, where they and the artichoke teams were already performing operational experiments. But they decided if they tested on the scale they thought was necessary, so many foreigners would have to know that it would pose an unacceptable security risk. Sid Gottlieb is remembered as the brainstorming genius of the MK Ultra group, and the one with a real talent for showing others without hurting their feelings while their schemes would not work. State's an ex-colleague who admires him greatly. In the final analysis, Sid was like a good soldier. If the job had to be done, he did it. Once the decision was made, he found the most effective way. In this case, Gottlieb came up with a solution after reading through old OSS files on Stanley Lovell's research for a truth drug. Gottlieb noted that Lovell had used George White, a pre-war employee of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, to to test concentrated marijuana. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics is now ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Besides trying the drug out on Manhattan Project volunteers and unknowing suspected communists, White had slipped some to August Del Grazio, the lucky Luciano lieutenant. White had called the experiment a great success. If it had not been, if Del Grazio had somehow caught on to the drugging, Gottlieb realized the gangster would never have gone to the police or the press. His survival as a criminal required he remain quiet about even the worst indignities heaped upon him by government agents. To Gottlieb, underworld types looked like real ideal test subjects. Nevertheless, according to one TSS source, we were not about to fool around with the mafia. Instead, this source says they chose the borderline underworld, prostitutes, drug addicts, addicts, and other small timers who would be powerless to seek any sort of revenge if they ever found out about what the CIA had done to them. In addition to their being unlikely whistleblowers, such people lived in a world where an unwitting dose of some drug, usually knockout drops, was an occupational hazard anyway. They would therefore be better equipped to deal with and recover from a surprise LSD trip than the population as a whole, or so TSS officials rationalized. At least they could say to themselves, here I go again, I've been slipped a Mickey, says the TSS veteran. Furthermore, this veteran remembers his former colleagues reasoned that if they had to violate the civil rights of anyone, they might as well choose a group of marginal people. George White himself had left OSS after the war and returned to the Narcotics Bureau. In 1952, he was working in the New York office. As a high-ranking narcotics agent, White had a perfect excuse to be around drugs and people who used them. He had proved during the war that he had a talent for clandestine work, and he certainly had no qualms when it came to unwitting testing. With his job, he had access to all the possible subjects the agency would need, and if he could use LSD or any other drug to find out more about drug trafficking, so much the better. From a security viewpoint, CIA officials could easily deny any connection to anything White did, and he clearly was not the crybaby type. For Sid Gottlieb, George White was clearly the one. The MK Ultra chief decided to contact White directly to see if he might be interested in picking up with the CIA where he had left off with the OSS. Always careful to observe bureaucratic protocol, Gottlieb first approached Harry Anslinger, the longtime head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and got permission to use White on a part-time basis. Then Gottlieb traveled to New York and made his pitch to the narcotics agent, who stood 5'7", 
weighed over 200 pounds, shaved his head, and looked like an extremely menacing bowling ball. After an early morning meeting, White scrawled in his sweat-stained, leather-bound diary for that day, June 9th, 1952. Gottlieb proposed I be a CIA consultant, I agree. By writing down such a thing and using Gottlieb's true name, why did broken CIA security regulations even before he started work? But then, White was never known as a man who followed rules. Despite the high priority that TSS put on drug testing, White's security approval did not come through until almost a year later. It was only last month that I got cleared, the outspoken narcotics agent wrote to a friend in 1953. I then learned that a couple of crew-cut, pipe-smoking punks had either known me or heard of me during OSS days and decided I was, quote, too rough, unquote, for their league and promptly blackballed me. It was only when my sponsors discovered the root of the trouble they were able to bypass the blockade. After all, fellas, I didn't go to Princeton. People either loved or hated George White, and he had made some powerful enemies, including New York Governor Thomas Dewey and J. Edgar Hoover. Dewey would later help block White from becoming the head of the Narcotics Bureau in New York City, a job White sorely wanted. For some forgotten reason, Hoover had managed to stop White from being hired by the CIA in the agency's early days, at a time when he would have preferred to leave narcotics work altogether. These were two of the biggest disappointments of his life. White's previous exclusion from the CIA may explain why he jumped so eagerly at Gottlieb's offer and why at the same time he privately heaped contempt on those who worked for the agency. A remarkably heavy drinker who would sometimes finish off a bottle of gin in one sitting, White often mocked the CIA crowd over cocktails. He thought they were a joke, recalls one longtime crony. They were too complicated and they had other people do their heavy stuff. Unlike his CIA counterparts, White loved the glare of publicity. A man who gloried in talking about himself and cultivating a hard-nosed image, White knew how to milk a drug bust for all it was worth, a skill that grew out of early years spent as a newspaper reporter in San Francisco and Los Angeles. In search of a more financially secure profession, he had helped. He had joined the Narcotics Bureau in 1934, but he continued to pal around with journalists, particularly those who wrote favorably about him. Not only did he come across in the press as a cop hero, but he helped to shape the picture of future Kojaks by serving as a consultant to one of the early television detective series. To start a raid, he would dramatically tip his hat to signal his agents and to let the photographers know that the time had come to snap the picture. He was sort of vainglorious, says another good friend, the kind of guy who, if he did something, didn't mind having the world know about it. Scientists from TSS with their PhDs and lack of street experience could not help admiring White for his swashbuckling image. Unlike the men from MKUltra who, for all their pretensions, had never worked as real-life spies, White has put his life on the line for OSS overseas and had supposedly killed a Japanese agent with his bare hands. The face of one ex-TSS man lit up like a little boy's on Christmas morning as he told of racing around New York in George White's car and parking illegally with no fear of the law. We were Ivy League, white middle class, notes another former TSSer. We were naive, totally naive about this. And he felt pretty expert. He knew the whores, the pimps, the people who brought in the drugs. He'd purportedly been in a number of shootouts where he'd captured millions of dollars worth of heroin. He was a pretty wild man. I know I was afraid of him. You could not control this guy. I had a little trouble telling who was controlling who in those days. White lived with extreme personal contradictions. As he could be expected as a narcotics agent, he violently opposed drugs. Yet he died largely because of his beloved alcohol had destroyed his liver. He had tried everything else from marijuana to LSD and wrote of an acquaintance 
I did feel at times I was having a mind-expanding experience, but this vanished like a dream immediately after the session. He was a law enforcement official who regularly violated the law. Indeed, the CIA turned to him because of his willingness to use the power of his office to ride roughshod over the rights of others in the name of national security when he tested LSD for the agency in the name of stamping out drug abuse for the Narcotics Bureau. As yet another close associate summed up White's attitude towards his job, he really believed the ends justified the means. George White's pragmatic approach meshed perfectly with Sid Gottlieb's needs for drug testing. In May of 1953, the two men who wound up going folk dancing together several times formally joined forces. In CIA jargon, White became MKUltra sub-project number three. Under this agreement, White rented two adjacent Greenwich Village apartments, posing as the sometime artist and seaman Morgan Hall. White agreed to lure guinea pigs to the safe house, as the agency men called the apartments, slip them drugs, and report the results to Gottlieb and the others in TSS. For its part, the CIA let the Narcotics Bureau use the place for undercover activities and often for personal pleasure whenever no agency work was scheduled, and the CIA paid all the bills, including the cost of keeping a well-stocked liquor cabinet, a substantial bonus for White. Gottlieb personally handed over the first $4,000 in cash to cover the initial costs of furnishing the safe house in the lavish style that White felt befitted him. Gottlieb did not limit his interest to drugs. He and other TSS officials wanted to try out surveillance equipment. CIA technicians quickly installed installed see-through mirrors and microphones through which eavesdroppers could film, photograph, and record the action. Things go wrong with listening devices and two-way mirrors, so you build these things to find out what works and what doesn't, says a TSS source. If you are going to entrap, you've got to give the guy pictures, flagrante delicto, and voice recordings. Once you learn how to do it so the whole thing looks comfortable, cozy, and safe, then you can transport the technology overseas and use it. This TSS man notes that the agency put to work in the bedrooms of Europe some of the techniques developed in the George White Safehouse operation. In the Safehouse's first months, White tested LSD, several kinds of knockout drops, and that old OSS standby, Essence of Marijuana. He served up the drugs in food, drink, and cigarettes, and then tried to worm information, usually on narcotics matters, from his guests. Sometimes MKUltra men came up from Washington to watch the action. A September 1953 entry in White's diary noted, Lashbrook at 81 Bedford Street, Owen Winkle and LSD Surprise can wash. Kit Sid Gottlieb's deputy, Robert Lashbrook, served as project monitor for the New York Safe House. White had only been running the Safe House six months when Olson died in Lashbrook's company, and agency officials suspended the operation for reevaluation. They soon allowed him to restart it, and then Gottlieb had to order White to slow down again. A New York State commissioner had summoned the narcotics agent to explain his role in the deal that wound up with Governor Dewey pardoning Lucky Luciano after the war. The commissioner was asking questions that touched on White's use of marijuana on Del Grazio, and Gottlieb feared that word of the CIA's current testing might somehow leak out. This storm also soon passed, but then, in early 1955, the Narcotics Bureau transferred White to San Francisco to become agent there. Happy with White's performance, Gottlieb decided to let him take the entire safehouse operation with him to the coast. White closed up the Greenwich Village apartments, leaving behind unreceded tips for the landlord to clear up any difficulties about the alterations and damages, as a CIA document put it. White soon rented a suitable pad, as he always called it, on Telegraph Hill, with a stunning view of San Francisco Bay, the Golden Gate Bridge, and Alcatraz. 
To supplement the furniture he brought from New York, the New York safe house, he went out and bought items that gave the place the air of the brothel it was going to become. Toulouse Lautrec posters, a picture of a French can-can dancer, and photos of manacled women in black stockings. He was supposed to look rich, recalls a narcotics agent who regularly visited, but it was furnished like crap. White hired a friend's company to install bugging equipment, and William Hawkins, a 25-year-old electronics whiz then studying at Berkeley, put in four DD4 microphones disguised as electrical wall outlets and hooked them up to two F-301 tape recorders, which agents monitored in an adjacent listening post. Hawkins remembers that White kept a pitcher of martinis in the refrigerator, and he'd watch me for a while as I installed a microphone and then slip off. For his own personal observation post, White had a portable toilet set up behind a two-way mirror where he could watch the proceedings, usually with drink in hand. The San Francisco safe house specialized in prostitutes, but this was before the height report and before any hooker had written a book, recalls a TSS man. So first we had to go out and learn about their world. In the beginning, we didn't know what a John was or what a pimp did. Sid Gottlieb decided to send his top staff psychologist, John Gittinger, to San Francisco to probe the demimond. George White supplied the prostitutes for the study, although White, in turn, delegated much of the pimping function to one of his assistants, Ira Ike Feldman, a muscular but very short man whom even the 5'7 White towered over. Feldman tried even harder than his boss to act tough. Dressed in suede shoes, a suit with flared trousers, a hat with a turned-up brim, and a huge zircon ring that was supposed to look like a diamond, Feldman first came to San Francisco on an undercover assignment posing as an East Coast mobster looking to make a big heroin buy. Using a drug-addicted prostitute named Janet Jones, whose common-law husband states that Feldman paid her off with heroin, the undercover man lured a number of suspected drug de dealers to the bad and helped White make arrests. As the chief federal narcotics agent in San Francisco, White was in a position to reward or punish a prostitute. He set up a system whereby he and Feldman provided Gittinger with all the hookers the psychologist wanted. White paid off the women with a fixed number of chits. For each chit, White owned one favor. So the next time the girl was arrested with a John, says an MK Ultra veteran, she would give the cop George White's phone number. The police all knew White and cooperated with him without asking questions. They would release the girl if he said so. White would keep good records of how many chits each person had and how many she used. No money was exchanged, but five chits were worth $502,000. Prostitutes were not the only beneficiaries of White's largesse. The narcotics agent worked out a similar system to forgive the transgressions of small-time drug pushers when the MK Ultra men wanted to talk to them about the rules of their game, according to the source. TSS officials wanted to find out everything they could about how to apply to apply sex to spying, and the prostitute project became a general learning and then training ground for CIA, CIA carnal operations. After all, states one TSS official. We did quite a study of prostitutes and their behavior. At first, nobody really knew how to use them. How do you train them? How do you work them? How do you take a woman who's willing to use her body to get money out of a guy to get things that are much more important, like state secrets? I don't care how beautiful she is. Educating the ordinary prostitute up to that level is not a simple task. The TSS men continually tried to refine their knowledge. They realized that prostitutes often wheedled extra money out of a customer by suggesting some additional service as male orgasm neared. They wondered if this might not be a good time to seek sensitive information. But no, says the source, we found the guy was focused, 
focused solely on hormonal needs. He was not thinking of his career or anything else at that point. The TSS experts discovered that the post-sexual light-up a cigarette period was much better suited to their ulterior motives, says the source, quote, Most men who go to prostitutes are prepared for the fact that after the act, she's beginning to work to get herself out of there so she can get back to the street to make some more money. To find a prostitute who is willing to stay is a hell of a shock to anyone used to prostitutes. It has a tremendous effect on the guy. It's a boost to his ego if she's telling him he was really neat and she wants to stay for a few more hours. Most of the time, he gets pretty vulnerable. What the hell is he going to talk about? Not the sex, so he starts talking about his business. It's at this time she can lead him gently, but you have to train prostitutes to do that. Their natural inclination is to do exactly the opposite. The men from MK Ultra learned a great deal about varying sexual preferences. One of them says, quote, We didn't know in those days about hidden sadism and all that sort of stuff. We learned a lot about human nature in the bedroom. We began to understand that when people wanted sex, it wasn't just what we had thought of, you know, missionary position. We started to pick up knowledge that we could be used in operations. But with a lot of it, we never figured out any way to use it operationally. We just learned. All these ideas did not come to us at once. But evolving over three or four years in which these studies were going on, things emerged which we tried. Our knowledge of prostitutes' behavior became pretty damn good. This comes across now that somehow we were just playing around. We just found out all these exotic ways to waste the taxpayers' money on satisfying our hidden urges. I'm not saying that watching prostitutes was not exciting or something like that. But what I am saying was there was a purpose to the whole business. In the best tradition of Matahari, the CIA did use sex as a clandestine weapon, although apparently not so frequently as the Russians. While many in the agency believe that it simply did not work very well, others like CIA operators in Berlin during the mid-1960s felt prostitutes could be a prime source of intelligence. Agency men in that city used a network of hookers to good advantage, or so they told visitors from headquarters. Yet with its high proportion of Catholics and Mormons, not to mention the Protestant ethic of many of its top leaders, the agency definitely had limits beyond which prudery took over. For instance, instance, a TSS veteran says that a good number of case officers wanted no part of homosexual entrapment operations. And to go a step further, he recalls one senior KGB man who told too many sexual jokes about young boys. It didn't take too long to recognize that he was more than a little fascinated by youths, said the source. I took the trouble to point out he was probably too good, too well-trained to be either entrapped or to give away secrets, but he would have been tempted toward a compromising position by a preteen. I mentioned this, and they said, as a psychological observer, you're probably quite right, but what the hell are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to get a 12-year-old boy? The source believes that if the Russian had a taste for older men, U.S. intelligence might have mounted an operation, but the idea of a 12-year-old boy was just too much was much more than anybody could stomach. As the TSS men learned more about the San Francisco hustlers, they ventured outside the safe house to try out various clandestine clandestine delivery gimmicks in public places like restaurants, bars, and beaches. They practiced ways to slip LSD to citizens of the demimonde while buying them a drink or lighting up a cigarette, and they then tried to observe the effects when the crowd took hold. Because the MKUltra scientists did not move smoothly among the very kinds of people they were testing, they occasionally lost an unwitting victim in a crowd, thereby sending a stranger off alone with a full head of LSD. In a larger sense, all the test victims would become lost. As a matter of policy, Sid Gottlieb ordered that virtually no records be kept of testing. In 1973, when Gottlieb retired from the agency, 
He and Richard Helms agreed to destroy what they thought were the few existing documents of the program. Neither Gottlieb or any other MKUltra man has owned up to having given LSD to an unknowing subject or to even observing such an experiment, except, of course, in the case of Frank Olson. Olson's death left behind a paper trail outside of Gottlieb's control, and that hence could not be denied. Otherwise, Gottlieb and his colleagues have put all the blame for actual testing on George White, who was not alive to defend himself. One reason the MKUltra veterans have gone to such lengths to conceal their role is obvious. Fear of lawsuits from victims claiming damaged health. At the time of the experiments, the subject's health did not cause undue concern. At the safe house, where most of the testing took place, doctors were seldom present. Dr. James Hamilton, a Stanford Medical School psychiatrist and White's OSS colleague, visited the place from time to time, apparently for studies connected to unwitting drug experiments and deviant sexual practices. Yet neither Hamilton nor any other doctor provided much medical supervision. From his perch atop the toilet seat, George White could do no more than make surface observations of his drug victims. Even an experienced doctor would have had difficulty handling White's role. In addition to LSD, which they knew could cause serious if not fatal problems, TSS officials gave White even more exotic experimental drug to test, drugs that the other agency contractors may or may not have already used on human subjects. If we were scared enough of a drug not to try it out on ourselves, we sent it to San Francisco, says a TSS source. According to a 1963 report by CA Inspector General John Ehrman, in a number of instances, however, the test subject became ill for hours or days, including a hospitalization in at least one case, and White could only follow up by guarded inquiry after the test subject's return to normal life. Possible sickness and attendant economic loss are inherent contingent effects of the testing. The inspector general noted that the whole program could be compromised if an outside doctor made a correct diagnosis of an illness. Thus, the MKUltra team not only made some people sick, but had a vested interest in keeping doctors from finding out what was really wrong. If it, that bothered the inspector general, he did not report his qualms, but he did say he feared serious damage to the agency in the event of public exposure. The inspector general was only somewhat reassured by the fact that George White maintained close working relations with local police authorities, which could be utilized to protect the activity in critical situations. If TSS officials had been willing to stick with their original target group of marginal underworld types, they would have little to fear from the police. After all, George White was the police. But increasingly, they had used the safe house to test drugs, in the general inspector's words, on individuals of all social levels, high and low, Native American and foreign. After all, they were looking for an operational payoff, and they knew people reacted differently to LSD according to everything from health and mood to personality structure. If TSS officials wanted to slip LSD to foreign leaders, as they contemplated doing to Fidel Castro, they would try to spring an unwitting dose on somebody as similar as possible. They used the safe house for dry runs in the intermediate stage between the laboratory and actual operations. For these dress rehearsals, George White and his staff procurer, Ike Feldman, enticed men to the apartment with prostitutes. An unsuspecting John would think he had bought a night of pleasure, go back to a strange apartment, and wind up zonked. A CIA document that survived Sid Gottlieb's shredding recorded this process. Its author, Gottlieb himself, could not break a lifelong habit of using nondescriptive language. 
For the MK Ultra chief, the whores were certain individuals who covertly administered this material to other people in accordance with White's instructions. White normally paid the women $100 in agency funds for their night's work, and Gottlieb's prose reached new bureaucratic heights as he explained why the prostitutes did not sign for the money. Due to the highly unorthodox nature of these activities and the considerable risk incurred by these individuals, it is impossible to require that they provide a receipt for these payments or that they indicate the precise manner in which the funds were spent. The CIA's auditors had to settle, settle for canceled checks, which White cashed himself and marked either Stormy or just as appropriately undercover agent. The program was also referred to as Operation Midnight Climax. TSS officials found the San Francisco safe house so successful that they opened a branch office, also under George White's auspices, across the Golden Gate on the beach in Marin County. Unlike the downtown apartment where MK Ultraman says you could bring people in for quickies after lunch, the suburban Marin County outlet proved useful for experiments that required relative isolation. There, TSS scientists tested such MK Ultra specialties as stink bombs, itching, and sneezing powder, powders and diarrhea inducers. TSS's Ray Trichler, the Stanford chemist, sent these harassment substances out to California for testing by White, along with such delivery systems as a mechanical launcher that could throw a foul-smelling object 100 yards, glass ampules that could be stepped on in a crowd to release any of Trichler's powders, a fine hypodermic needle to inject drugs through the cork in a wine bottle, and a drug-coated swizzle stick. TSS men also planned to use the Marin County Safe House for an ill-fated experiment that began when staff psychologists David Rose and Walter Pasternak spent a week circulating in bars inviting strangers to a party. They wanted to spray LSD from an aerosol can on their guests, but according to Rose's Senate testimony, the weather defeated us. In the heat of the summer, they could not close the doors and windows long enough for the LSD to hang in the air and be inhaled. Sensing a botched operation, their MK Ultra colleague, John Gittinger, who brought the drug out from Washington, shut himself in the bathroom and let go with the spray. Still, Rhodes testified Gittinger did not get high, and the CIA men apparently scrubbed the party. The MK Ultra crew continued unwitting testing until the summer of 1963, when the agency's inspector general stumbled across the safe houses during a regular inspection of TSS activities. This happened not longer after Director John McCone had appointed John Earman to the Inspector General position. Much to the displeasure of Sid Gottlieb and Richard Holmes, Earman questioned the propriety of the safe houses, and he insisted that Director McCone be given a full briefing. Although President Kennedy had put McCone in charge of the agency a year before, Helms, the professional's professional, had not bothered to tell his outsider boss about some of the CIA's most sensitive activities, including the safe houses and the CIA mafia assassination plots. Faced with Earman's demands, Helms, surely one of history's most clever bureaucrats, volunteered to tell McCone himself about the safe houses, rather than have Earman present a negative view of the program. Sure enough, Helms told Earman afterward, McCone raised no objections to the unwitting testing, as Helms described it. A determined man and a rather brave one, Earman countered with a full written report to McCone, recommending that the safe houses be closed. The inspector general cited the risks of exposure and pointed out that many people both inside and outside the agency found the concepts involved in manipulating human behavior to be distasteful and unethical. McCone reacted by putting off a final decision but suspending unwitting testing in the meantime. 
Over the next year, Helms, who then headed the clandestine services, wrote at least three memos urging resumption. He cited indications of an apparent Soviet aggressiveness in the field of covertly administered chemicals, which are, to say the least, inexplicable and disturbing. And he claimed the CIA's positive operational capacity to use drugs is diminishing owing to a lack of realistic testing. To Richard Helms, the importance of the program exceeded the risks and the ethical questions, although he did admit we have no answer to the moral issue. McCone simply did nothing for two years. The director's indecision had the effect of killing the program, nevertheless. TSS officials closed the San Francisco Safe House in 1965 and the New York one in 1966. Years later, in a personal letter to Sid Gottlieb, George Wright wrote an epitaph for his role with the CIA. Quote, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, cheat, kill, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest, unquote. After 10 years of unwitting testing, the men from MK Ultra apparently scored no major breakthroughs with LSD or other drugs. They found no effective truth drug, a recruitment pill, or aphrodisiac. LSD had not opened the mind to CIA control. We thought at first this was the secret that was going to unlock the universe, says a TSS veteran. We found that human beings had resources far greater than imagined. Yet despite all the, the lack of precision and uncertainty, the CIA still made field use of LSD and other drugs that had worked their way through the MKUltra testing progression. In 1957, a report showed that TSS had already moved six drugs out of the experimental stage and into active use. Up to that time, CIA operators had utilized LSD with other psychochemicals against 33 targets in six different operations. Agency officials hoped in these cases either to discredit the subject by making him seem insane or to create within the individual a mental and emotional situation which will release him from the restraint of self-control and induce him to reveal information wittingly under adroit manipulation. The agency has consistently refused to release details of these operations, and TSS sources who talk rather freely about other matters seem to develop amnesia when the subject of field use comes up. Nevertheless, it can be said that the CIA did establish a relationship with an unnamed foreign secret service to interrogate prisoners with LSD-like drugs. CIA operators participated directly in these interrogations, which continued at least until 1966. Often the agency showed more concern for the safety of its operational targets abroad than it did for its unwitting victims in San Francisco, since some of the foreign subjects were given medical examination medical examinations before being slipped the drug. In these operations, CIA men sometimes brought in local doctors for reasons that had nothing to do with the welfare of the patient. Instead, the doctor's role was to certify the apparent insanity of a victim who had been unwittingly dosed with LSD or an even more durable psychochemical like BZ, which causes trips lasting a week or more, and which tends to induce violent behavior. If a doctor were to prescribe hospitalization or other severe treatment, the effect on the subject could be devastating. He would suffer not only the experience itself, including possible confinement in a mental institution, but also social stigma. In most countries, even the suggestion of mental problems severely damages an individual's professional and personal standing. As Thomas Eagleton, the recipient of some shock therapy, can testify. It's an old technique, says an MKUltra veteran. You neutralize someone by having their constituency 
constituency doubt them. The church committee confirms that the agency used this technique at least several times to assassinate a target's character. Still, the clandestine, clandestine services did not frequently call on TSS or LSD or other for LSD or other drugs. Many operators have practical and ethical objections, in part to overcome such objections and also to find better ways to use chemical and biological substances in covert operations. Sid Gottlieb moved up in 1959 to become assistant for scientific matters to the clandestine services chief. Gottlieb found that TSS had kept the MKUltra program so secret that many field people did not even know what techniques were available. He wrote that tight controls over field use in MK Delta operations may have generated a general defeatism among, among case officers who feared they would not receive permission or that the procedure was not worth the effort. Gottlieb tried to correct these shortcomings by providing more information on the drug arsenal to senior operators and by streamlining the approval process. He had less luck in overcoming views that drugs do not work or are not reliable and that their operational use leads to laziness and poor tradecraft. If the MK Ultra program had ever found that LSD or any other drug really did turn a man into a puppet, Sid Gottlieb would have had no trouble surmounting all those biases. Instead, Gottlieb and his fellow researchers came frustratingly close, but always fell short of finding a reliable control mechanism. LSD certainly penetrated the, to the innermost regions of the mind. It could spring loose a whole gamut of feelings from terror to insight. But in the end, the human psyche proved so complex that even the most skilled manipulator could not anticipate all the variables. He could use LSD and other drugs to chip away at free will. He could score temporary victories. He could alter moods, perception, sometimes even beliefs. He had the power to cause great harm, but ultimately he could not conquer the human spirit. So that was uh, chapter six, Search for the Manchurian Candidate candidate by Marx. It's interesting. There's like a little, in his footnotes, he mentions Paul Avery, who worked on the Zodiac killings. He was like featured in the movie. But uh says here, Paul Avery, a San Francisco freelance writer associated with the Center for Investigative Reporting in Oakland, California, interviewed William Hawkins and provided assistance on the details of the San Francisco safe house and George White's background. Additional information on White came from interviews with his widow, several former colleagues in the Narcotics Bureau, and other knowledgeable sources in San Francisco law enforcement agencies. An uh, ex-Narcotics Bureau official told Dr. James Hamilton's study of unusual sexual practices and the description of his unwitting drug testing comes from MKUltra Subproject 2, which is his subproject. So some interesting research there. This is 1978. So I guess I can talk about the 1977 MKUltra program. There's a lot of questions. Kennedy's like uh, Kennedy's asking directly to... Gittinger. So it's Goldman, Kennedy, Senator Kennedy. Let's see. He, he talks to Goldman. He's also a colleague of Gittinger. <clears throat> and they talk about the safe house. It's pretty interesting. Let's see. This is Kennedy. So it's uh, Senator Kennedy. Now, to your knowledge, how were the drugs administered to the unwitting subjects? Gittinger, I have no direct knowledge. Kennedy, why did you go to the safe houses? Gittinger, 
it's a very complicated story. Just in just justification of myself, this came up just day before yesterday. I've not really had enough time to get it all straightened in my mind, so I ramble. Kennedy, well, you take your time and tell us in your own words. We've got some time here. Mr. Gittinger, my, my responsibilities, which would involve any of the period of time which we were talking about, really was not directly related to drugs at all. I was a psychologist charged with the responsibility of trying to develop as much information as I could on various cultures, overseas cultures, anthropological type data, if you follow what I mean. I originally became involved this through working on Chinese culture. Over a series of time, I was introduced to the problem of brainwashing, which is the thing that really is the most compelling thing to this. Among other things, we decided, and I decided, that one of the best sources of interrogation techniques would be trying to locate an interview and become involved with experienced police interrogators in the country and experienced people who have real practical knowledge of interrogation. For this reason, as we come pretty well convinced after the experience of the brainwashing problems coming out of China, that it was the techniques of the interrogators that were causing the individuals to make confessions and so forth in relationship to this, rather than any kind of drugging. So we were very much interested in interrogation techniques, and this led me to being introduced to the agent in the West Coast, and I began to talk to him in connection with these interrogation techniques. Okay, now this is the agent that ran the test on the West Coast on the unwitting people. This is where you come in, correct? Mr. Gittinger, if I understand, would you say that again? Kennedy, the name Morgan Hall has been, that is the name that has been used. Gittinger, yes. So Gittinger doesn't tell the real name of Morgan Hall. That's the cover for white, right? These guys BS the government and then the church committee and these MK Alter hearings. They just worked on it. It's sad. They, they just didn't have enough information. See how you had it all. But this is another example of like, Kennedy doesn't know, and, and Gittinger doesn't proffer, proffer the fake name of White. He had to know it. Kennedy, and that's the agent you met with. And that's Gittinger, that's right. Kennedy, and you met at the safe house. Gittinger, yes, sir. And who did you meet in the safe house, Kennedy? Gittinger, this is the part that's hard for me to say, and I'm sorry to have to. In connection with some of the work we were doing, we needed to have some information on sexual habits. Morgan Hall provided informants for me to talk to in connection with the sex habits that I was interested in trying to find information. During one period of time, the safe house, as far as I was concerned, was used for just these particular type of interviews, and I didn't see the red curtains. So he's also avoiding, he avoids, I think, that fact that they were unwittingly drugged. Kennedy, these were prostitutes, were they? Gittinger, yes, sir. Kennedy, how many different times were you there that you had similar? Gittinger, I couldn't say with any certainty on that, four or five times. Kennedy, four or five times? Ginninger, over, you remember now the period I'm talking about, I would have any involvement is from 1956 to 1961. Kennedy, did Morgan Hall make the arrangements for the prostitutes to meet with you? Ginninger, yes. Kennedy, did the interviews that you've had have anything to do with drugs? Ginninger, well, as I tried to explain earlier when this was being discussed a little bit beforehand, I think it's pretty hard for most people now to recognize how little there was known about drugs at the period of time we were talking about. Because the drug age and the drug culture comes later on. Consequently, consequently, those of us who had any responsibility in this area were interested in trying to get as much information as we could on the subculture. The subculture drug groups, and obviously the Bureau of Narcotics represented a means of doing this. Consequently, other types of things were involved in discussions at the time that have to do with the underground use of drugs. When I'm talking about this, I'm talking about the folkways in terms of unwitting use of drugs. Did these people that I was talking to have any information about this? And on rare occasions, 
they were able to tell me about their use. And in most cases, they would largely turn out to be a Mickey fin or something of that sort rather than anything esoteric. I also was very much interested because we had relatively little information, believe it or not, at that time in terms of the various reactions that people were having to drugs. Therefore, these people were very informative in terms that they knew a great deal of information about reactions. Kennedy, so at least you gathered, am I correct in assuming you gathered the impression that the prostitutes that you had talked to were able to slip the drugs to people, as I understand it? Did you form any impression on that? Gittinger, I certainly did not form the impression that they did this as a rule. Kennedy, but they had the knowledge. Gittinger, they had the knowledge or some of them had knowledge of this being done. But again, as it turned out, it was largely in the area of knockout drops. Kennedy, looking back now, did you form any impression about how the agency was actually testing the broad spectrum of social classes in these safe houses? With the large dispersal of cash in small quantities, $100 bills, and the kinds of elaborate decorations and two-way mirrors in the bedrooms and all the rest, is there any question in your own mind what was going on in the safe houses or the techniques that were being used to administer these drugs? Get injured. I find it very difficult to answer that question, sir. I had absolutely no direct knowledge that there was a large number of this. I had no knowledge that anyone other than Morgan Hall was in any way involved in the unwitting administration of God, drugs. Kennedy, but Godley would know, would he not? Gittinger, I believe so, yes, sir. Kennedy, could we go into the Human Ecology Foundation and talk about how that was used as an instrument in terms of the support of research? Yes, sir. Kennedy, could you describe it to us? Could you describe the Human Ecology Foundation how it functioned and how it worked. Gittinger, may I tell something about how it evolved, which I think is important? Kennedy, sure. Gittinger, the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, so-called, was actually, I'm confused as to now as to whether I should name you names. Well, we're not interested in names or institutions. I prefer you not. This has to be worked out in arrangements between Admiral Turner and the individuals and institution. But we're interested in what the foundation really was and how it functioned and what its purpose was. Gittinger, well, it was established to undertake research in the general area of the behavioral sciences. It definitely had almost no focus or interest in, say, drug-related type of activities, except in very minor way, because it was largely set up to attempt to gain a certain amount of information and to fund projects, which were psychological, sociological, anthropological in character. It was established in the sense of a period of time that a lot of us who were in it wish we could do it over again but we were interested in trying to get together a panel of the most representative high-level behavior scientists we could go, we could, to oversee and help in terms of developing the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology type program. The agency, in effect, provided the money. They did not direct the projects. Now, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of innocent people who received the Society Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology money, but I know for a fact they were never asked to do anything for the CIA, but they did get through this indirectly. They had no knowledge that they were getting CIA money. Over what period of time did this take place? As far as I was concerned, it was the period of time ending in 61. I believe the Human Ecology Fund finally phased out in 1965, but I was not involved in that phasing out. Can you give the range of the different sort of individual projects of the individual universities in which it was active? Get injured. Well, it would have as many as, I'm very fuzzy on the memory of the number of projects. It is over 10, 20, 30. So that, I mean, there was a lot of money bandied around. Kennedy doesn't really have an idea of the kind of drugging that was going on. 
but he passed between. There's a lot of different stuff, but it's still interesting as a timestamp. But I, I think looking through that, it, uh, senators had no idea the totality of what was going on. But um, I'm going to go talk about some of this other stuff and get to the JFK, the strange uh, connection between Gittinger and the JFK assassination, which is Gittinger is from Oklahoma, right? So this woman, Rose Jeremy, right? So she, Rose Jeremy was a prostitute and a drug runner. And she's featured right at the beginning of Oliver Stone's JFK, right? She's thrown out of a car. She eventually dies of a, in a car, a suspicious car accident. But she's in and out of mental institutions. And in strange proximity to Gittinger and Jolly and West. If you remember, uh, Jolly West was in Oklahoma as well. Gittinger's from Oklahoma but they're both at the same hospital. And this is from Alborelli's A Secret Order, full title, A Secret Order, Investigating the High Strangeness and Synchronicity in the JFK Assassinations. But uh, she had been committed. Let's see, where is this? Let's see. Also, Rose was once a patient in 1956 and 1957 at St. Elizabeth's in Washington, D.C., during the same years as this, that the CAA through its human ecology fund, right? We just went over that. They were funding everything. Operated a behavior modification project at the Washington facility involving CIA physicians John Gittinger and Lewis Jolly and West. So together. And then Jolly West was in, he was in New York. I mean, it was in, I think, the Col Colgate or Cornell, actually. But they had a satellite in um, Manhattan, satellite office that he was involved in. So it's really remarkable. But uh, also he was involved in these kind of uh, Ken Kesey's acid tests. So Gittinger's around there too. But let's see, he says, this is from A Terrible Mistake. So this is also Alborelli's book. MK Ultra and Ken Kesey's acid test. On the less tragic side, a talkative Gittinger also revealed that he and at least two other CA researchers from the TSS's chemical division had attended as curious observers Ken Kesey's Trips Festival in La Honda, California, and an acid test at San Francisco's Longshoreman's Hall. The Trips Festival, held in 1966, featured, features what Gittinger called an oddball mix of music, merriment, and bizarre behavior. The festival had been conceived by Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog fame, Zach Stewart, Ramon Sender, of both the Tape Music Center and Ann Halperin Dance Company and Ken Babs of Keezy's Merry Pranksters. Music for the event was provided by Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring then-unknown Janis Joplin. <coughs> okay, let me get back to this. Then-unknown Janis Joplin. LSD was liberally distributed by the legendary San Francisco outlaw chemist Owsley Stanley. Stanley described the event. It was completely out of control. Back in those days, we were, we were really rough with LSD. A large dosage was really rough. It would be a hell of a jolt for a guy in his late 30s to suddenly come face to face with the universe that way. A few weeks later, Gittinger's two TSS colleagues attended one of the earliest acid tests held outside of San Francisco. The test, really a psychedelic party, featured huge bowls of LSD spike punch. Nobody had any idea how much of the drug had been added to the mixture of fruit juice and soda. 
Music was provided by a group called the Warlocks, soon to become the Grateful Dead. Author Ken Kesey, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, described these events, quote, I tried to think of the real origins of this phenomenon, which I consider myself to be a large part of. One of the many people it goes back to, of whom you may not have heard, is George Stern. He was an activist and poet and did happenings. He and Michael McClure and Allen Ginsberg would do these things in San Francisco. When I first saw them, I thought, this is the new edge of the way entertainment's going to be done, unquote. Recalled CIA man Giddinger. Once, after these LSD parties became more commonplace, Alfred Hubbard and some doctor, I can't remember his name, tried to attend one event. It was crazy from the start. These two bald-headed, portly guys in dark suits walking into the middle of all this madness. You can imagine the paranoia count that the paranoia count went through the roof as they tried to mingle with the crowd and people began melting away from them. I don't think they were there for more than 10 minutes before they headed for the door. At least when we went to these things, we made an effort to blend in with things, unquote. So Gittinger's in these acid tests, which is really something else. Um, but there's just more to this Gittinger guy. He's over. He's overlooked, just like some of these other CIA talk. Uh, CIA... Uh, affiliated or and you know people who were over this this whole thing um he mentions there's another quote from him this is about him he says here this is him in 77 he says well of course there's been, been a great deal of work on this and there's still a great deal of controversy i can still tell you that as far as I knew, by 1961-62, it was at least proven to my satisfaction that brainwashing, so-called, is some kind of an esoteric device where drugs or mind-altering kinds of conditions and so forth were used, did not exist even though the Manchurian Candidate as a movie really set us back a long time because it made something impossible look implausible. Do you follow what I mean? So this guy is like... Uh, He's covering for stuff. But by 1962 and 1963, the general idea that we were able to come up with is that brainwashing was largely a process of isolating a human being, keeping him out of contact, putting him under long stress in relationship to interviewing and interrogation. And they could produce any change that way without having to resort to any kind of esoteric means. So that's a direct quote. The other thing is that he was connected to you and Cameron. I've gone over you and Canada. I've done father, son, and CIA. So that's pretty uh, disturbing. Um, where she was confined in Oklahoma was used by MK Ultra. CIA psychologist, Oklahoma native, John Gittinger. This is from a secret order. who oversaw the MK Ultra contract with you and Cameron in Montreal, Canada. Worked with the agency's technical services section. So that's what TSS stands for. And also monitored CIA sub-project with the Oklahoma facility at the same time as Rose's last confinement there. Additionally, Dr. Lewis Jolian West, professor of psychology, psychiatry, and of the psychology department at the University of Oklahoma and a CIA consultant, most likely also saw Rose while she was confined in Oklahoma, but this remains to be verified. What is certain and well-documented is that Dr. West, also a longtime CIA consultant and contractor, did professionally visit Lee Harvey Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby, on April 27, 1964 in Dallas, at the same time that Rose was confined. Of course, Dr. West never revealed to Ruby that he had strong ties to the CIA. Not long after Rose was released from the Oklahoma facility, she was back in Texas, where she met her ultimate fate. On September 4, 1965, at 2.10 in the morning, a car again hit Rose. This time, she did not get up. 
<clears throat> so he almost missed her, but he killed, he died, she died. And then get, uh, there's a very interesting aside. There was this radiation advisory committee in 1995, but it also included this mind control thing in a supposed victim, Claudia S. Mullen, um, who made testimony and she involves all these people that I've talked about, Gottlieb, Hamilton, and Gittinger and McCone and all these people. And I, I think some people have gone through it. Um, I had Shefflin. I, I talked about Michael Shefflin, the mind controllers. He was involved in this and, and said that her story was credible. But I mean, she said stuff about Gitt like Martin Orn, who's a kind of well-known kind of face, but this is all stuff that took play, place outside of New Orleans, which is like the bat. This is the garrison investigation, right? So there's a lot of tests going on at Tulane. If you know where Tulane is, that's uh, New Orleans. But uh, yeah, real an artichoke. It was 1958. This is her. This is Mullins. <clears throat> it was 1958. I was to be tested, they told me, by some important doctors coming from a place called the Society, the Human Ecology Society, right? We just went on that. Society for Human Ecology, excuse me. I was told to be brave and cooperate in the test might hurt. I was also instructed not to look at anyone's face too hard and ignore names. This was a secret project. Now I'd be asking a lot of questions and then given shots, x-rays, and a little jolt of electricity. And to be brave, all these things would help me forget. Naturally, as most children do, I had the opposite and remembered as much as I could. Dr. John Gittinger tested me and Dr. Cameron gave me the shocks and Dr. Green the x-rays. Then I was told by Dr. Gottlieb I was ripe for the big A, meaning artichoke. I learned later. By the time I left to go home, just like every other time from then on, I would recall nothing of my tests from different doctors. I would only remember what explanations Dr. Robert G. Heath of Tulane Medical School gave me for the odd bruises, needle marks, burns on my head and fingers, and even genital soreness. I had no reason to believe otherwise. All, already they had begun to control my mind. The next year I was turned nine, I sent to a place in Maryland called Deep Creek Caverns to learn how to sexually please men. I was taught how to coerce them into talking about themselves. Then I had to prove my accurate recall. Richard Helms, Dr. Gottlieb, George White, and Morse Allen all planned on trapping as many officials, agency targets, heads of academic institutions, and foundations. Later, if the funding started to dwindle or the head of the agency, John McCone, decided he could no longer tolerate children being tortured, abused, and shot full of biologicals and radiation, then he would be forced to continue the projects at all costs. I was to become a regular little spy for them after that summer, entrapping many unwitting men with the use of hidden cameras. I was only nine when this happened. So I'll put a link to this. But these uh, Martin Orn, these guys have all popped up in these weird mind control areas. But yeah, Gittinger is all over the place. <laughs> he really, he's, he, there's little pieces of him in different parts. And... Uh, there's also an interesting one. This, let's see. Yeah, it's just like strange stuff about his connection. But we know that uh, Jeremy was in and out of mental hospitals. There's a book called Rose by Any Other Name. So she was, you know, possibly, I mean, according to some, she was definitely in these same hospitals as these other guys. So St. Elizabeth Hospital. Definitely in Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. Just really strange things. So, anyway, that was episode nine, the Dehypno program about Dr. John Gittinger, Midnight Climax, and his strange tie to the JFK assassination. Thank you for listening. <laughs>